We finished our series this morning on the five pillars of the Reformation, thinking today about the glory of God alone. All things work together for God's glory. We consider it through this text in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. May God bless us as we go to his word then. Have you ever kept something valuable in a cheap container? There's something that feels not quite right about that, isn't there? Perhaps you've, you've heard the story, I'm sure many of us have, of the, the first printing of a Declaration of Independence that was found in a painting, in a frame, in the back of the painting, bought at a garage sale for, I think, $4. The man who bought it didn't even like the painting at all, but just wanted to use the frame. So he rips out the painting, and there he has something therein that was worth over $1 million. These make for good stories, but they make for good stories because there's something in us that tells us that something so valuable should be carefully stored in a fitting place. But in God's kingdom, the most valuable thing, the gospel, is put on display, it is stored, it is carried throughout the world in something that seems far away from matching its value in frail and mortal human bodies. That's what we learn today and what Paul speaks of in this passage. It's a fitting way to to close this series we've been going through, thinking about these pillars, these solas of the Reformation. Because Paul is pointing us to, even in the midst of, of this truth, that all things work together for God's glory and God's glory alone. Even if Uh, The valuable, the matchlessly valuable, infinite in worth gospel of Jesus Christ is is carried forth to the ends of the world in in what seems like something so fragile, something so frail, something so temporary. Our mortal bodies, our mortal bodies that lie under the curse of death. This does not detract from the glory of God, though. This is one of the, the wonders of this passage. It magnifies and exalts the glory of God, and it shows his power. Only a God so great and so glorious as ours could magnify and exalt himself in the salvation and the life and even the death of his people. We, as God's people, pass through this life on earth as, in many ways, a soft reflection of Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is the one who shows us this pattern of suffering before glory so that we might be comforted throughout all of the trials of our lives. So then, the glory of God alone, and we'll think about it in in three different movements this morning. The first is the glory of God in Christ Jesus. The glory of God in Christ Jesus. The second is the glory of God in the sin-cursed life of his saints. And the final movement is the glory of God in the glorification of his people. So then... Let us consider all of these. First, the glory of God in Christ. What do we mean by glory? What do we we mean by the glory of God? This is something that we perhaps feel out the meaning, and we probably can intuit what we mean when we think about the glory of God. But here's perhaps a working definition to help us think about it. The glory of God is his splendor and brilliance, majesty and transcendence. His glory is known fully only to himself. But he reveals his glory as he teaches his people who he is and as he shows his people what he does. He reveals his glory in nature. 
but he reveals his glory more clearly in grace. Thus, the clearest representation of the glory of God is Jesus Christ himself, who is called the glory of God. That's a lot of words, but that's basically what we think of when we think of the glory of God. It's God's transcendence, his worthiness of our praise and our adoration and our service. He reveals his glory to all the world in nature, and yet he reveals it more clearly in grace, and most clearly in Jesus Christ, his eternal son. All throughout the scriptures, we see that God is a glorious God. He is a glorious God. And he is so glorious that the word glory, the idea of glory, is attached to his name, becomes part of his name. 1 Samuel 15, he is called the glory of Israel. Psalm 24, a very famous psalm, of course, says that God is the king of glory. Psalm 29 says that he is a God of glory. Perhaps you have have read a a book on systematic theology or or, uh, the doctrine of God before. Maybe you've just looked through the table of contents or maybe you have uh, perused the pages themselves. But when theologians speak of the doctrine of God and they're thinking about the Trinity and the relationships of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all of these wonderful things uh, to to think about that are revealed in the scriptures, there's usually a, a good chunk of those books that are dedicated to the names of God, the names of God. And why is that? Well, it's because the names of God, perhaps a name like El Shaddai, which means the Lord Almighty, or Genesis 22, where we sort of transliterate it a little bit, Jehovah Jireh, that is his name, which which means the Lord will provide, that God is a God who provides. These names tell us something about who God is. It reveals something about his nature. So when glory is attached to the name of God, we learn that he is by nature glorious. It's something that is inherent to his being. The Father, Son, and the Spirit together, one and three, three and one, a glorious God. And they have always had their glory. They have always enjoyed their glory. And God alone is glorious. And this is what the scriptures compel us to conclude, that God alone is glorious. He he does not need his creation to be more glorious. He does not need us to be more glorious. Isaiah chapter 42 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And this, of course, leads us to conclude further that God is worthy of our praise. He is a God who is worthy of our worship and our adoration. And that, of course, is what we see again and again and again all throughout the scriptures. Psalm 102, nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Even those who are most powerful in the world will be brought to a place where they need to acknowledge the glory of God. Psalm 115 is is a great cry of the people of God who say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, we give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. There will come a day when everyone on earth will acknowledge and they will know for certain the glory of God and they will know how futile it was to seek to exalt themselves or to seek to advance their own glory. Isaiah chapter 2 speaks about this in some detail. It says, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought 
low. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. What we do as the people of God is is we confess that God has revealed that truth to us before that day has come. And that is what we do when we gather for worship. That is what we are to do in our lives. To humble ourselves before the glorious God that he has shown us and he has humbled us before that day comes. But there will come a day when everyone from one end of the earth to the other, will know and they will see that God alone is glorious. This was felt by Israel in the face of their sin. As they were wandering through the desert, we read that the the glory of God was like a consuming fire to them. And they feared the glory of God. They could not stand to be near it. This is who God is. He is a glorious God. And when viewed from, from this angle, it's not a comfort. It's not a comforting thing, is it? In the face of our sin, uh, we cannot stand to be around this glorious God. So where do we go in Scripture? We think about the glory of God and, and all of these things. We go to the teaching of Scripture which tells us that His glory is revealed in His mercy and His willingness to save. It's not just that by His nature He is glorious and by His nature, the nature of His glory, He must be set apart from sin. But also, He is a glorious God who is merciful. And his mercy and his grace exalts his glory and it magnifies his glory. Isaiah will go on to speak of of prophecies, not just of man being humbled, but of God redeeming his people. And when God redeems and ransoms his people, the glory of God becomes a comfort. Because he then hides them in the shadow of his wings, like we sang today. The, the, The man, the woman who finds his or her abode in God. Is a blessed person indeed. Isaiah chapter 35, it says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. So we have a, a prophecy of blessedness. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. And then, then it says this, They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. All of a sudden, in the context of being redeemed, of being ransomed, of being cleansed, the glory of God is a comfort. And this brings us At long last to what Paul is saying in our passage this morning. Paul says that we have a treasure. A treasure. What is that treasure? What is that treasure that Paul is speaking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Well, he has already told us what that treasure is in in the passage before. It's what he says is the gospel of the glory of Christ. That is the treasure that Paul is talking about. The gospel of the glory of Christ. And and throughout the passages leading up to this one, he has shown how the gospel of the glory of Christ is really the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being united in the redemption of his people. And that the light of Christ has been revealed to us and that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And this is the treasure of the gospel. This glorious God united in redeeming his chosen people. So he teases this out, the God who created light out of darkness, the God who shone on the mountain, who was like a consuming fire to Israel, and then, and then caused Moses' face to shine, now shines in the hearts of believers to give what he calls is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the glory of God going hand in hand, and showing us what Paul means by this word for treasure. The Gospel of John tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen what? We have seen His glory. 
Christ coming to earth was a revealing of the glory of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This is the treasure that Paul is speaking of, this revealing of the glory of God. And of course, we would be remiss if we did not remind ourselves on this Reformation Sunday that God is glorified in not only the accomplishing of redemption, but in the applying of redemption as well, because he is the one. He is the one who opens the eyes of the blind as the gospel is proclaimed, and he draws people to himself, and God gets glory because of that. Ephesians 2 puts this in very clear terms for us, that you're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So we can't prop up our works to boast in God. God alone is glorified in salvation, and it's by grace through faith. In that very same passage, what does Paul say? God makes us alive together with Christ. Without Christ, we are spiritually dead. But by the power of the gospel, we are made alive. God alone saves. God alone is the one who gives spiritual life. The glory of God is revealed in Christ. The glory of God is also revealed in the curse-filled life of his saints. Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay. Clay pots, as it is found uh, in, in other translations. Jars of clay. This is a bit of a Christian colloquial fa- phrase, perhaps because uh, a very popular band bears this name. But I think because of that, we, we often employ this phrase without thinking about the context of this passage. So what does Paul mean by jars of clay? Speaking of cheap earthenware pots that were used as containers to store things. And he is relating the fact that this gospel is a treasure, and yet it is stored, carried around to the ends of the earth in the fragile container of the human body. No one was a better representative of this than Paul himself, was, it? was he? He was a symbol of fragile weakness. He was not a symbol of earthly power or stature by any means. And this is what gave rise to 2 Corinthians as a letter. Paul is in many ways answering his critics who had begun to to say that Paul can't be an apostle of this glorious God that he talks about in Scripture. They would say probably something like this. Paul proclaims this great and this glorious God, but look at his life. He is uh, weak and frail. When he appears in person, he, he is not a powerful speaker at all. Furthermore, he is poor. He, he begs from other Christians. He needs them to provide for him. He is clearly not an apostle of this great and glorious God. That's what they were saying about Paul. And, and Paul's answer is, yes, you are correct. All of those things about me are true, but that magnifies the glory of God. That exalts the glory of God. That's the wonder of the gospel that he preached. This treasure, this matchless treasure, infinite in worth, human beings saved by the God of the universe, united to Christ, given the, the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, then endowed with the Spirit, and given eternal life. All of these things could be brought to the whole world through a weak representative like Paul. Through any representative, no matter how weak. The fact that the gospel spread, that the kingdom grew, this magnified and exalted the glory of God and the glory of him alone. Earthly kings are often obsessed, or they would have been obsessed back in those times, with conveying a front of power. 
glory. So whenever they sent people out, there would probably be a lot of pomp and circumstance. Messengers sent out, and they would be a symbol of the power of the king that they were representing. So there would be great care given to make sure that there would be this show, this display of power. But when you're speaking of the God-King of Scripture, the one who truly commands all things, who knows the beginning from the end and has decreed everything in between, any representative uh, that he can send out will accomplish his purposes. Someone rejected, someone base, someone poor, someone weak and frail and fragile. So it's amazing, isn't it, that, that many people today make the same mistakes as those, as those who accused Paul in his day. Uh, they make the same exact mistakes. They think, this God is a big and powerful and glorious God, you say. If he is so big and so powerful, we ought to be able to tell with your lifestyle. You ought to never be in want. You ought to be able to live lavishly according to the tastes and the treasures of this world. You should have nice things. And Paul, of course, makes the exact opposite point. He makes the exact opposite point. God's power is displayed through the gospel saving, besides being proclaimed by weak human mess in the midst of being proclaimed by weak human messengers. And that provides the truth necessary for what Paul talks about in verses 8 through 12. He expands upon this. He's working out the implications of this treasure being carried in a clay pot, jars of clay. So in verses 8 through 9, he paints a picture for us, or rather four pictures. In many ways, these are, these are odd descriptions. Sometimes they even seem like perhaps nonsense. Paul is cornered. He's pinned in on every side, completely surrounded. But no matter how much, he is not crushed. He is thrown into confusion, but does not have the despair that is often accompanied by confusion. He is being hounded and chased as a fox by dogs, verse 9. But he is not forsaken. He is knocked down, but he is not knocked out. Those last two comparisons uh, in verse 9 are noteworthy especially. The, the word for persecuted can mean killed. That's how Paul often uses it. It's killed, someone whose earthly life has ended. The word for abandoned really means God forsaken, which has a, a, the idea of a covenant attached to it. That in the, having God as your covenant God is a God who will never forsake you. That's a beautiful promise in Scripture. But the promise that God will never forsake you, the reason that Paul could grasp onto that promise, it's not some promise that just appears out of thin air. Paul thought about it in relation to Christ. How can he know that God will never leave him? How can we know that God will never leave us nor forsake us? Because Christ was forsaken for us. Because Christ paid the price for sin. Because Christ met the demands of the law. Christ reconciled us to God. Paul proclaims these promises to a world in need. And Paul's sufferings are given meaning because they exist in the shadow of the sufferings of Jesus. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, you want to understand suffering in the world. You understand why I'm weak and frail and why that still goes to serve the glory and the majesty and the splendor of God. Look at Jesus. Jesus is the one 
who suffered. If you look at verses 10 through 14, I think there's five or six occurrences of the name Jesus. And that, of course, is is drawing our attention to the human nature of Jesus. Because when we think about him in his human nature, it is there that he suffered. He suffered in his human nature. So Paul keeps saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because he's talking about all of his sufferings, how it exalts the, the majesty and the glory of God. And he's saying, Christ's sufferings exalt the majesty and the glory of God. So Paul is, in effect, saying to the Corinthians, not just the defense of his, of his apostleship, but also a comfort for them in the midst of their sufferings. Paul is, in effect, saying to them, and in effect saying to us, when you suffer, and you will, remember me. And more than that, remember Jesus. Don't let anyone convince you that Suffering, trials, hard times, confusion, being cornered, being persecuted, any of that. Don't let anyone convince you that that means God has forsaken you. He will never forsake you. Because Jesus, our Lord and King, suffered for you. So as death worked itself out more and more in Paul, he's saying it's death for us, but it's life for you. Look to me, be assured that God will never forsake you because of my suffering. Because I can tell you that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul says that he is glorified in his sufferings. In some ways, his suffering had to be unique because he is an apostle. But what he does is he uses that to show that all of the church is to glorify God in all of life. That becomes something that a teaching that is, is all throughout Scripture. We are to glorify God in all of our lives. Colossians 3, do all things for the glory of God. Just kind of three different categories that I'd like to briefly mention when we think about glorifying God in all of our lives. First, we glorify God with our faith. We glorify God with our faith. The book of Romans talks about this in relation to Abraham. Abraham is an example of faith. God promised him when he was 100 or or 99, by the time uh, the child showed up, he was going to be 100, that he would have a child. Sarah was 90. It seems like an outlandish promise, right? But then we read in Romans chapter 4 that no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham's resting in the promises of God. In the midst of a world that was filled with a lot of trouble for him, a lot of doubt, in the midst of a reality that said something different, he clung to the promises of God. So we too, when we rest in the promises of God, give glory to God. We glorify God through our faith. We also glorify God in and through our worship. Of course, worship is is all of life. Paul calls us to give our bodies as living sacrifices The worship is part of all of life, but particularly the Bible often draws us to corporate worship, worshiping with the people of God, and that is one of the ways in which we glorify God. The Psalms are replete with these kinds of of admonitions for us and instruction for us. Psalm 86, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. What we're doing when we gather together, is we're, we're verbalizing, we're making known what is the condition of our heart all the other days of the week, that we're seeking to glorify God in all that we do. Isaiah chapter 24 says this is not just an individual endeavor, this is something that 
one day the whole earth will do. Isaiah 24, from the ends of the earth we hear singing, glory to the righteous one. We glorify God through our worship. Of course, where we are in in redemptive history, where we are in the story of what God is doing, we worship in a Christ-centered way. We worship in the shadow of the cross. We come together in the name of Jesus Christ because he is the one who has cleansed us and it is through him that God accepts our worship. Verse 15, Paul says, and so uh, all that he does is so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. As Christ is proclaimed, thanksgiving overflows to the glory of God. It magnifies and exalts his glory. Finally, we glorify God in all that we do, in every area of our life. So in our faith, in our worship, and then in every area of our lives, in our work, in our home lives, our recreations and our hobbies, our challenges and our joys, our waking and our sleeping. And one of the ways, one of the primary ways that the scriptures talk about this is that we glorify God in all we do by using our gifts to serve one another in this community, this family that God is creating, the church, and drawing us together in love. Use your gifting to serve one another. First Peter chapter 4 says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. This is what we are to do. Seek God's glory in all things. John Calvin says that he who has learned to look to God in everything that he does is at the same time diverted from all vain thoughts. By God's grace, we are to constantly seek to be glorifying God in all that we do. In our faith, our worship, all that we do, we seek his glory and the exaltation of him. And finally then, as we close, we see the glory of God in the glorification of his people. The glory of God in the glorification of his people. This passage began by saying that God's glory is made manifest through these jars of clay, these fragile, temporary containers of these mortal uh, human bodies. Clay pots break. That was what they were famously known for in that day and age. They're, they're cheap, they're quickly made, you can make a lot of them, but they're going to break and you're going to have to replace them. But what Paul is saying is that it is the final shattering of those clay pots which serves to exalt the glory of God in and through our lives. Look at what he says in verse 14. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. The verse prior to that he quotes Psalm 116, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Paul, his faith is a faith in the resurrection. That's what he's calling us to remember. Remember as you trust and rest in Christ, remember the resurrection and let your faith in the resurrection of the dead shape your lives. Of course, he says in 1 Corinthians, if there is no resurrection, we are to be most pitied among all people. Our faith is in Christ and it is in the resurrection of the dead. So then he exhorts his people and he, and he exhorts us 
to not lose heart. In this life, do not lose heart. As you seek the glory of God in all that you do, in faith and worship and all things, remember that our faith is in Christ and in the resurrection of the dead, that Jesus was raised and so we will be too. The wonder of all of it is that in the most painful part of this life, going off of the way that Paul is speaking, sufferings exalt the majesty, the glory of God. So it is true in our lives. The most painful part of our lives, God is glorified. Yes, even in death, God's power and his glory can be made manifest. The call upon God's people is to keep the faith and to glorify God even until our very last breath. In this psalm that Paul quotes here in Psalm 116, it goes on to say, a very well-known comforting verse says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So then let your hope be on Christ and do not lose heart. First Peter chapter 5 says that when the chief shepherd appears, we all shall receive the unfading crown of glory. Glory. So our lives ought to be shaped just like the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 73, where we read this, speaking of him being with God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you shall receive me into your glory. Wonderful summary of the Christian life. God holds our hand. He guides us with his counsel, and afterwards he will receive us into his glory. In in your bulletins, there's that uh, little snippet about the writer of the Belgian Confession, the author Guido Debray. He wrote a letter to his wife there right before he was martyred. There's another part of that letter that I'd like to read just as we close. He said this, uh, about to be martyred for, for his teaching and preaching the gospel. I am happy. My heart is light and it lacks nothing in my afflictions. I am so filled with the abundance of the richness of my God that I have enough for me and all those to whom I can speak. So I pray, my God, that he will continue his kindness to me, his prisoner. The one whom I have trusted will do it. For I have found by experience that he will never leave those who have trusted in him. I would never have thought that God would have been so kind to such a poor creature as I. I feel the faithfulness of my Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Christ... God will never forsake you because he was forsaken for us. And because of that, we can rejoice in our life and our death, our resurrection and our glorification because it all serves to exalt and to magnify the glory of God. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. So God, Father, Glorify your name through us. We thank you. We praise you for calling us unto yourself and cleansing us. We know that it all goes to your glory, that as grace spreads around more and more, it increases thanksgiving. Whether we are in happy and joyous times and sufferings, it all can serve your glory and your name. Help us to trust in that, to rest in that as the saints of old. Pray all these things. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. We close our service then by singing.